Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Way back when, when Dean was just a boy, one early winter, late fall evening, he was the only one at home, and it was left to him to do the chores. His job was to water and to feed the horses. And so he went out, scattered some hay, and then he walked over to the spigot, and the spigot was just a a pipe coming up out of the ground with a valve on the end. He reached down and grabbed the valve and turned it, and it came off in his hand. And immediately, there came forth a great fountain of water, and there was no way to shut it off. Well, what would you do? Well, Dean grabbed the spigot and tried to shove it back on and rethread it, but it didn't work. It wouldn't catch. And the more he tried to push that thing on, the more the water spewed and sprayed and went everywhere. And there was a sufficient quantity of water coming out of that pipe that if he just let it go, he would turn the corral into a manure-laden pond, a mess of muck. I can just see it in my mind. Dean tried desperately to put that spigot back on, and the harder he tried and the more he worked with it, the more wet, cold, and chilled he became. Finally, what's he going to do? And at that point, it dawned on him, pray. Dean walked over to a haystack, which gave him a small measure of privacy. He said, and I quote now, I stepped over by the haystack just a few feet away. As I knelt down and began to pray, I basically, with much sincerity, told Heavenly Father that I had done all I could possibly do and that I now needed his help. When I had finished praying, he said, I walked over to the pipe, spigot in hand, reached down to try and attach it to the pipe. And I quote, the spigot went on so easily that you would have thought it had never come off in the first place. I like that story. You know, you don't, have to pray for the life of a loved one. You don't have to always just pray about big things. Sometimes you can pray about very about very little things. And we're always heard. I'm reminded of Alma 34:37. Let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually. I have thought so much lately about how to pray continually. I really like that story. Thank you, Dean, for sharing. Another story that I got just this week is from one of our viewers up in Canada, Diana Packett. She shared, and it comes off the heels of our last fireside where we talked about conversion. This is a most unusual, but you know, so many of the stories that I read and that I shared were about miraculous, not mine, of course, but about 
miraculous events that led to conversion. And there's a tendency sometimes among us to think, well, dreams, revelations, and visions, those things all happened in the early days of the Restoration, but not so much now. Well, Diana's story would beg to differ. She said, she tells of the fact that she had gone to church with a good friend, another denomination. And when it was over, she asked her friend, is there more? And her friend said, no, what do you mean? And Diana says, well, I just feel that there should be something more than what she'd heard. Well, she went home that night and she knelt down and she prayed and asked Heavenly Father if there was a true church on the face of the earth that had all his truth in it. She said, I was not prepared to bounce around from church to church to find a little bit here and a little bit there. Now, that to me is profound. She is spot on. Well, she lay down. She went to sleep, and she had a dream, a most unusual dream. And in that dream, she said, and I'll quote it here, I stood in a room that was divided down the middle by a line. I stood, she said, on the line, and on the right side of that line, or on the one side of that line, was people and noise and partying. On the other side of the line, it was just a bare white wall. Well, she looked over to this side and she thought, I'm going to go over there. Well, you know, there's something happening over there, party and people and yeah, etc. Well, somewhere in that dream, in that room, she said, a fire broke out and she couldn't get out of the room. There were no doors, no windows. She began to panic and thought, I don't want to die, quote, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. She looked over to the other side of the line with the white wall. And as she did so, suddenly she saw a hand, the cuff of a white shirt, and the cuff of a blue suit jacket. She grabbed that hand and evidently was pulled to safety. She said, I woke up, and it was morning. As she reflected on the dream, and evidently she could remember it, it was the strangest dream, she said, I'd ever had in my whole life, and I had no idea what it meant. Later that night, she said, she was at her grandmother's house for a visit, and then there came a knock at the door. I answered it, she said, and there, you guessed it, standing in front of me, were two young men with smiles on their faces, and one of them reached out his hand. And as she did so, she looked down. She saw a hand, the cuff of a white shirt, and the cuff of a blue suit jacket. I quote now, I took that hand. And he said, we are missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we have a message for you. She burst into tears and said, I know. 
They taught her, and she said there was something familiar that she felt like she had already heard. And a month later, Diana was baptized and still faithful. And from my conversations with her, has had a difficult time in her life, but is still faithful, still cheerful, and has been watching these firesides with us. I feel to say, my dear friends, we are not alone in this world. Each of us, we are all watched over. We are all loved, very much beloved by a heavenly father, a heavenly mother, and angels and family members who have preceded us. We are not alone. I don't know how I came on to this next connected set of stories. I was doing some research this week that one of you had sent me reading a story, and somehow, following this lead and that lead, I wound up on Family Search and found a most interesting pioneer by the name of Robert Gardner Jr. He tells the story in his account how one Sunday he found out there in Salt Lake City that he had been called to settle the new Dixie Cotton Mission and to create a new town down there called St. George. Well, the next day he walked into church headquarters and there he saw George A. Smith in the historian's office who laughed when he walked in and said, don't blame anyone but me. He said the president, meaning President Brigham Young, told me to get a list of names suitable for that mission. So I thought of you for one, and I thought you'd be willing to go if called. So I put your name down. If you don't want to go, step into the president's office, ask him to take your name off the list, and he'll do it. To which Robert Gardner Jr. replied, I expect he would, but I shan't try him. I have come to find out what kind of an outfit is wanted and when to go. He said, this is the kind of men we want. So President Young and George A. Smith advised him to sell out to good advantage, take his family and head for St. George, which didn't exist yet, evidently, or at least it was just getting started. So he came home, settled his affairs, gathered his wife, Mary Ann, and two daughters, and set out for St. George. Along the way, he picked up a traveling companion and family, William Lang, and his wife, Anne. As they headed south towards St. George, everybody was settling in a community called Washington, and other people were further to the north in a community called Tokerville. But the instructions given by President Young and George A. Smith were to go down and settle and make a community called St. George. As they went on south, they overtook many companies. They came to a fork in the road. Now, I don't know where this is. Some of you Dixie settlers down there can point it out to me. But they came to a fork in the old Pioneer Road. One way went to Tokerville, and the other way went down towards St. George. And he said, Everyone was going that way towards Tokerville. And he said, no one was going the other way. There was scarcely a track. Now he said, there was scarcely a wagon track in this direction. 
Brother Lang and I felt lost for a little moment, but we said, and I quote, we will go where we are told to go and help make a track. And we've always been glad we did so. He went on to say, now we had heard a great many yarns about the Dixie country. And he went on to say, we had heard a sermon from George A. Smith talking about St. George. He said, St. George, it's great range country. Quoting, when a cow got one mouthful of grass, she had to range a great way to get another. He said sheep did pretty well, but they wore their noses off, reaching down between the rocks to get the grass. He said they continued on until they finally reached the budding community of St. George. He said, we found families who had been sent on that mission some years before. The appearance of these brethren and their wives and children was rather discouraging. Nearly all of them had fever and ague or chills, as they called it. They had worked hard in the country, worn out their clothes and replaced them with their own homegrown cotton. Their clothes and their faces were all of one color, blue with the chills. And then Robert Gardner said, this tried me harder than anything I had seen in all of my Mormon experience. Thinking my wives and children would look as sickly as those now surrounding me, I said, quote, we will trust in God and go ahead. Look at St. George now. The second story is a continuation of the first, and it came out of the journals of Robert Gardner. It seems that when he was down there in St. George and had lived there for some time, we now fast forward to the year 1872. Construction had begun, according to Brother Gardner, on the St. George Temple. The problem was is that the lumber for the St. George Temple was coming from Mount Trumbull, which is, what, 60-some miles away? I'm, I, my partner, Dennis, knows where it's at, but I haven't been there. Mount Trumbull, supposedly, according to Brother Gardner, a 66-mile journey away was where they were harvesting the timber. But the men up harvesting the timber, there had been deep snow, not enough feed, and the cold and the snow and the hardship had caused the men manning the lumber mill to just shut down and walk away. Well, this was very annoying, quoting Brother Gardner, to Brigham Young and George A. Smith. One day I was called at the temple building site. Brother George A. Smith rode up in his carriage, saw Brother Gardner, and called to him and asked him to get up in the carriage with him, to which Brother Gardner did, climbed up in the seat, and George A. started a conversation about the temple. He said, and I quote, you cannot realize how much the president is annoyed over this lumber question and how anxious he is to get this temple completed. Now listen to this. He feels, this is Brother Brigham, that he's getting old and that he's liable to drop off at any time. And he has keys which he wants to give in the temple. They can be given only in the temple. And then he continued. Bishop Hunter is getting old, 
and is anxious to do the work in the temple for his dead before he passes away. And then George A. added, my own anxiety is great on that subject. And I've been thinking ever since the lumber business has stopped, listen, I love the way he puts this, where can I put my hand on a man who will not be stopped by a trifle? but will get out the lumber no matter what it will cost that the temple may be finished without delay. And then he said, and I cannot get my mind on anyone except you, meaning Robert Gardner Jr. (laughs) Oh, if only the Almighty had that kind of confidence in me, I would feel so good. To which Brother Gardner, and this is classic, To which Brother Gardner replied, Brother Smith, if I were to study my own feelings, I would go on a mission to China rather than go out there. (laughs) But I have nothing to say. If you want me to go there, I will go and do the best I can. Brother George A. returned to President Young, told him about the call he had extended to Brother Gardner, And President Young and George A. sent a telegram asking Brother Gardner to go to Mount Trumbull, use my wisdom and energy to get out that lumber, and that I would have their blessings and backing. And it was signed by Elder George A. Smith and President Brigham Young. My answer to them was that I would go forthwith. And so he went up there, took inventory of the equipment, came back down to St. George, gathered up men, wagons, equipment, horses, and supplies, and went back up there. And he said, we soon had a steady stream of lumber running from standing trees to the temple, causing no hindrance for want of lumber, by the way, the construction had been shut down, which pleased the presidency very much. My engagement was for six months. It was calculated that it would require about that time to get the lumber for the temple. But he said, we filled all the bills for lumber and sought a great deal for customers besides. End of quote. I realize that this is a church of volunteers and you can't fire volunteers. I don't know how many times the Lord would have fired me if I was an employee for my performance. What would it be like if all of us were that true and faithful to our calls and to our covenants and to obedience. Oh, what a church this would be if we would just keep our word and do what we're told to do. Okay, this story comes from Sister Lindy Taylor, who's been one of our viewers as we've done these firesides. And she shares me a story of, I think it's her second great-grandfather, Well, I can't remember, Linda, you'll have to correct me. The year was April of 1878, just north of Grantsville, Utah. Young Oren Orlando Barris and his older brother were driving a large herd of cattle near Grantsville down to the lake to something they called the Sand Knolls. This is in the spring of the year. The reason that they're going down there is that the grass first began to grow down near the shore of the lake. It had been a hard winter, and these evidently, he said, are in the days before alfalfa, so feed was scarce 
and the cattle were poor and needing all that they could get. Well, the two boys drove the herd of cattle and they had to cross from one sand knoll over to another. As the cattle went down through the swale between the two sand knolls, there was an alkali swamp at the bottom. The cattle walked out in it and dropped. Well, the more the cattle struggled to extricate themselves from the swampy mud, the deeper they sank. And the boys, this, this swamp is 100 yards across. They can't walk out there. And what are they going to do with a thousand pound animal anyway? So the older brother, Orlando's older brother, ran back to get some help. And Orlando said, I was left to stand guard over the herd and await his coming. While performing this service, I became somewhat excited, and upon seeing several of our most valuable animals struggling and plunging in the swamp, they sunk deeper and deeper into the quicksand and mire until only the heads of some of them could be seen. I know this sense of panic to lose valuable animals. He said the rest of their bodies were sunk out of sight. Desperate, Orlando wondered what to do, and it was at that moment that he remembered what his mother had taught him, that when he was in trouble, in times of distress, that he should pray. Now listen to this. He's only about eight or nine years old. He said, I raised my hand and arm to the square as I'd seen our brethren do in opening a meeting, stood up, removed my hat, and earnestly implored my Heavenly Father to take our animals out of the predicament they had gotten themselves into. Still quoting, No sooner had I offered this prayer than some power put me on my knees and a voice seemed to say, Pray again. This I did more earnestly than before, if possible, asking the Lord to get the cows out of the mire as quickly as he possibly could. And he said, I had an assurance right there and then that it would be done. At the conclusion of the prayer, Orlando got up off his knees and ran back up to the top of the sand knoll to see if his brother was coming. And not too far away, he saw his brother coming in the distance with two of his uncles with a large span of horses and chains to drag the animals out of the mud. Orlando, and I'm quoting, With them, he said, meaning his uncle and his brother, with them I returned to the spot where the struggle was going on when to the great astonishment of my brother and uncles, all of the aforesaid animals were completely out of the swamp. They were peacefully grazing on the green grass on the next sand knoll over and so covered with mud that they all seemed the same color, black. How did the animals get out of there? Orlando's uncles at first began to laugh and accused the boys of crying wolf, but it was evident from the appearance of the animals that they had been mired in the swamp to the neck and somehow they'd gotten out. But what happened? Well, Orlando said, 
I knew, but I was afraid to tell them how it happened for fear they would doubt and would laugh and would treat a sacred thing lightly. I knew that the Lord had answered my prayer and had taken the cattle out of the mire. Just how it was done, I do not know. But, he said, we saw someone leaving the swamp just as we came on the scene, riding a large horse or a mule. He was only a hundred yards or so away, but he never came to receive our thanks or to tell what he had done. And I am convinced, Orlando said, that no human could have done such a big job in such a short time. We went over where he was seen and discovered the tracks of a large shod horse or mule in the sand. Orlando concluded by saying, I know, as I know that I live, that God heard and answered the prayer of a little boy. And he said, the best attitude for prayer is on the knees. For he put me on my knees when I was standing up praying, and he said to me, pray again. Just how he did it, just how he got those animals out, I do not know. But, he said, I believe the man on a horse was from another world. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, in the Book of Mormon, the Savior said to the Nephite disciples that after he ordained them and sent them forth to teach, he said that the world would be converted through their words. That reading this week had a profound impact on me because if there's anything I pray for, it's the words and the power that will, as the Book of Mormon says, affirm your faith let you know that you've made the right decision, that you're in the right place, that you have the right faith and have made the right covenants, and that you're on the right path, and Almighty God is with you and will listen to you. That's my hope and prayer. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <laughs>